0: The National Archives podcast series, Dependence, Intolerance and Expulsion, The Story of the Jews in England, 1066-1290, to
1: presented by Adrian Jobson and Sean Cunningham.
0: Thank you for coming again. We've got a bit of a double act today, so we're going to get through quite a lot, Um, although it's only a couple of centuries, there's quite a lot to talk about. So Adrian is going to talk later about what's happening towards 1290 and how how the community is expelled from the country and the reasons why, and I'm going to say a bit more at the start about um, how the the Jewish community developed under the English kings, mainly from Henry I onwards. So the first thing to notice is that there's not really any evidence of a a Jewish population in England before the Norman conquest. I think we have William of Malmesbury to, to thank for suggesting that the Jews entered around about 1070 recruited from William I's Norman lands, mainly because of their their skills in finance. And obviously this was something that the new crown in England needed, both for loans and also for the skills in in managing the new income. So it's not until really around about 1100 that we get some sort of idea of what conditions or what restrictions the Jewish population lived under. And we've got this Charter of Liberties, which was confirmed by King John in 1201, but really was going back probably into the the mid-12th century and it, it established the Jews were the king's property, and their privileges included rights of court and, and the way things could be tested in court, and then how people could swear on their own holy books. The jurisdiction in cases involving Jews was with the royal courts and the custom, constables of king's castle. So these, these liberties cost the Jews 4,000 marks, which is a huge amount of money, and this is, this is one of our earliest charters, King John Charter from 1204, which, is, which establishes the rights of the Jews in England. And we know that there were considerable settlements in East Anglia, in the South and in the Midlands by the mid-12th century, and that Jewish financiers like Josca of Gloucester were funding um, major activities such as the English conquest in Ireland from 1170. And England remained an attractive location for many Jews at this time because the French exiles who were thrown out of France by Philip Augustus in 1182, a lot of them ended up in England. So financial pressures did begin to grow as the success of the Jewish businesses grew also, and this is seen in the range of taxes imposed on Jewish communities. For example, the, the tiny Jewish community reportedly paid almost as much as the entire Christian nation towards the 10th to aid Jerusalem, the Saladin tithe in 1189. And there's some evidence for this in the pipe rolls of the exchequer, which survive from this period. So we're moving on a bit further, we can see under Henry III that we begin to get restrictions. Henry follows the, um, the Pope's Lateran Council of 1215 and institutes the wearing of badges and other regulations for the Jewish community. And during his reign, there's a systematic expelling of, of Jewish merchants and communities from English towns, and this carries on right through um, to, to 1272. And during the Barons' War, we can also see the value of the Jewish community in that the debts and bonds of debts um, between Jews and Christians were targeted by Henry's opponents during the Barons War (coughs) as a way of removing or undermining royal income. So the Jewish community had a central role in keeping the crown's finances afloat. And here Simon de Montfort also tried to cancel debts to Jews during his control of government. So the loss of records, which is a good thing for an archivist to say, really weakened the financial position of the Jewish community but also of the crown and the crown eventually started to turn to foreign merchants and and foreign banks for major loans and this allowed the Jews to be treated more as chattels of the crown and especially in the ruthless way they were taxed. We can also see a a parallel change in in the way the Jews were treated in the country mainly through the rise of, of crusading influence and the need to go on crusades. So there were many massacres in the six months after Richard I's coronation in 1189, and most infamously at York in March 1190, and there was a, a large conference at York last month in um, which he investigated the massacre in its context. And Richard seems to have be been more concerned at the loss of his income as protector of the Jews rather than their own treatment as subjects of the crown and treatment in English towns as well. So by 1194, the crown is intervening in Jewish financial life with an ordinance of the Jewry a first attempt at major regulation and this set up that um, records of Jewish finances were to be kept by royal officials in what were called chirographs and I'll say more about this in a minute and this was the first step in creating a formal regular regulatory system the Exchequer of the Jews which is formal crown scrutiny of Jewish business dealings So again, this is one of our early records, which is the Jewish Plea Roll from 1219. It's what Richard I set up to administer and collect taxes and to register loans and other deals. And it also became a legal body, in effect a court, which settled disputes between Jews and amongst those who had business dealings with Christians. And what we've got is, um, at the moment, a six-volume transcript of all the contents of these rolls, up to 1281, with probably one more volume to go which have been published by the Jewish Historical Society. And this is what the original pleas look like. And on, on this one we've got um, a range of cases mainly dealing with, with property in London and Oxford, complaints from Christians that they couldn't read the Hebrew contracts, but they were still producing these documents as evidence of business dealings, and also land in in London which which became part of the House of Converts on this particular membrane which Adrian will be saying more about in a in a short while. So these bonds, which we have a lot of evidence of, um, existed in triplicate, one to the creditor, one to the de- debitor, and the third would be sealed and placed in what were called arca, which were local document repositories um, or chests of chirographs. And the chirographers were the, the people who actually wrote these documents. And in each stage, there had to be two Jews and two Christians. So basically, every town around the country where there was a Jewish community had to have one of these archive into which all the bonds and evidence of business would be collected and this became a crucial aspect in the the process of expulsion later on. And really, as I mentioned earlier, the writing after Richard's coronation um, made it essential that that records were were safely kept. Um, Previously, if, if a document was destroyed, that was all evidence of the debt gone. So it was in the Crown's interest to make sure these were maintained, and the classic argument was that if if the documents had been preserved, then the taxes could have been greater and the Jews could have helped preserve the king's finances even better. So at this point the king is is being it's being proved to the king that it's in his interest to maintain the livelihood of the Jewish merchants and communities. And this is one example of individual debts to Abraham of Berkhamsted in 1250. So he's another major royal financier. Um, He's used as a a source of tax revenue but he was also involved in collecting and assessing the taxation from other members of his own community, especially for this tax of 10,000 marks in 1250. But of course as a a high profile figure he's he's, um, in the line for accusations and this was one in 1240 he had to face um, that he was imprisoned on charges of defacing an image of the Virgin Mary and of murdering his wife when she refused to help him. Highly unlikely, and was proved to be baseless. And like many allegations of ritual murder or kidnapping, which I'll mention later on, this had no foundation, and he was released on payment of a fine. But again, as Adrian will mention later, he was in trouble for coin clipping, simply because of the the Jewish practice of of lending money at interest. And dealing in in such major state finance, this was an accusation they often had to face. So here's the record of Abraham's debts. Property dealings were another aspect of how the Jewish community could make money and make a a living. This is a, a document granting land in London to Isaac the Jew for forty nine shillings and rent, and it shows a little bit about in this period before Henry III how Jewish and com- Christian communities did get on very well. Especially on a, on a business level, so Gervais of Cornhill's family were very prominent in London's administration and government, and yet they were quite willing to pledge land as security to a fairly small loan given by Isaac. So the early Jewish gage um, allowed the debtor to keep possession of his land until um, the land could be cleared, uh, the debt could be cleared or a debt made default. And in the latter case, the land could be seized and the property held for a year and a day. And this is why we have quite a lot of evidence of these property dealings, because either of the the quittances or the the court cases around them. So this is quite an early example in terms of our our collection here. And another one which um, includes the Hebrew contract, um, which are are known as STARS. And this is a house in the jury which was near the Tilt-yard at the time and a lot of members of the royal household and and Christian knights wanted the property in this area simply because it was near to where they spent a lot of time jousting and learning learning their fighting skills. So it's a good example of how property was important in terms of building up finance and influence. Again you can see the indented top and the Hebrew writing at the bottom as proof that it's a a dealing between Christians and, and Jews. And again, this is another one in London. I should say that the word star comes from the Hebrew word shetar, um, which has turned into Latin a starum, which is why we have in our catalog and our, in our documents lots of references to, to, to Jewish stars, which is actually a document rather than an, an image or a badge. So it's applied to any document involving Jews, but especially property dealings, quick claims, and releases from debts. And it's interesting that the people named in these documents are often the people who wrote them from the Jewish community. At this time, Christian merchants would have used professional writers to draw up their documents. So again, there's another, another connection to the people involved and mentioned in these papers. So again, you can see the, um, the Jewish contract attached to the Latin Christian document. So going back slightly to, to talk about taxation, I mentioned earlier that the contributions made by the Jews in 1194 was quite enormous and it listed their places of residence in the document and the enormous sum of 5,000 marks raised by, raised by the Jews towards the ranchment of the king was very large and when the, the leaders of the Jewish communities let, met at Northampton they, they agreed the total that they would contribute to this and this was um, basically how the interaction between the crown and the Jewish community was, was managed through the election of, of a community representative or leader and just the, the relationship between what was created by the London community and what also the Jewish community could, could generate in terms of wealth as royal chattels was demonstrated by this tax. So the Jews um, around the country raised three times as much of the, as the whole of the city of London, which shows the relative wealth of these two merchant communities at the time. So it's well known that Henry III increased the frequency of taxation on the Jewish communities as he searched for extra revenue and it's likely that during the course of his reign, uh, this, uh, this really enormous total of 320,000 marks was, was drawn from the Jewish community and into the king's coffers. So you could see why it was valuable. And here in the National Archives, we have got many, many tallies, tally sticks, recording um, the payments to the taxation. So again, physical evidence of, of debts being paid. So what was the impact of this taxation? You could see that the value and the amount of money being drawn from the community directly to the crown was, was very heavy, a heavy burden to bear um, and it required a, a system and an organization to make sure that at least there was some representation and, and right of, of communication with the crown and you can see in these, these collections from individuals you know, things like 175 pounds was the sort of level that a, a nobleman would be paying to a, a lay tax at the time and Aaron of York was one of the greatest um, financiers of the the reign. And ironically, he is responsible for contributing major major funds to um, the building of Westminster Abbey, the Tower of London, and the famous windows in York Minster. So he served as the arch presbyter, the leader of the Jewish community, 1236 to 43, but the pressure was so, so much that he basically was forced to prepay his death duties during the last years of his life, which drained his estate completely and shows that Henry III was almost prepared to ruin the wealthiest Jews to get his hands on their money in any which way he could. And this is an example of um, tax payments from Edward II's reign, where you can see all of the named, the named people there. It's obviously a, a review of, of earlier taxation, but in these tax records, you do get the names of the communities who paid the taxes. So again, it's an interesting step to take back to see the names who are, who are contributing. Another example of the pressure comes from Elias Levesque, who was the leader of the Jews um, 1243 to 57. His personal tax contributions survive here amongst the exchequer records, mainly in series E101. Um, he was appointed to appeal to Henry III against the levels of tax imposed. And the, the drain was so great that he asked to actually allow the community or parts of it to leave the country. And he was deposed from office and, and converted to Christianity as a result. And this really does give you some idea of of the direct pressure the Crown placed on the leaders of the Jewish community. So the downside of that is that as Jewish wealth develops and Jewish interests in financing the Crown um, and the level of protection they had to some extent because they were so valuable to the Crown, um, it created quite a lot of antagonism in local communities. And we've got some good examples of how this manifested itself in documents and in court cases. So this is a caricature of a man called Aaron, who's called the son of the devil. You can see the writing above his head there. And this is from a a trial for basically poaching in the forest of um, Enfield Chase in Essex. A group of his sons and some Christian men stole some royal deer, and yet he is the one condemned as son of the devil. So it shows something of how representations could be made. This is also um, the earliest English example of of the badge of shame that was ordered by the Lateran Council of, of 1215, so you can see he's wearing it on his um, on his clothes here. And by 1277, er, every Jew over the age of seven would have worn this identifying mark. Obviously, some modern parallels there. And just for a close up, with the text of the of the court case next to it. This is one of our more famous um, images as well. This is written on the top of. Um, a receipt roll for Jewish taxation from 1233 and it's the Norwich Norwich section and there's a very good part of our education website which dissects this image and goes into the the sort of symbolism and and what's trying to be told by the clerk who basically scribbled this on the roll as he was drawing up the tax returns. What we've got is, is Isaac Phil Jernet at the top there with the three faces um, who is facing in different directions because of the different businesses and different activities he's, he's engaged in. He's also um, owns the dock in Norwich. He owns lots of warehouses and property. He finances the royal royal coffers, and he's also doing personal money lending in the region. And Mosse Mokka here and his wife Abigail are his chief agents for collecting debts in the city. And you can see the, the symbolism is not very subtle, let's say with all of these devils and scales and balances to show how things are being judged, basically condemning the Jewish practice of usury and extortionate interest rates. And it's a very hostile image, and it mocks these, these people named and says something about their status in, in Norwich at the time. And just going back a couple of years, you have these allegations of, um, of kidnapping and of ritual murder, which again, it's very difficult to see any basis for these, but the documents we have must be treated in the same way that a lot, of, a lot of legal cases are at this time, where contents can be taken at face value, but they might be telling a different story in reality. It's very difficult for us to see what's going on. But you can see there's a, there's a real tension in Norwich at the time, some real anti-Semitism, And actually, this trial is brought to London, uh, and some very senior people in the realm are the ones who try this case of Odart, son of Benedict. And four of the accused Jews were convicted and hanged. Another one fled the country and was outlawed. And the document we have is the inquest into the property of this man who fled the country, which was granted by, by the king to um, the boy's father in 1235. So that's in standard form for an inquisition at the time. But you can make out the names of Cineret, Jew of Norwich. And I think that means he's, he's fled the country. Another one, again, which, which shows to some extent how local communities were, were willing to push something through even though the evidence, to the contrary, was staring them in the face. This is of a small child found strangled and mutilated in the cemetery of St. Swithins in Winchester in 1232. And the story was that the boy's nurse had sold him to um, Abraham Pinch, a Jew of the local town, who had then ritually killed him. But the mother of the child had actually already sought sanctuary, later confessed to the killing, and fled the realm, indicating that was probably the real basis of the child's death. But the jury at the local heir, the Hampshire heir of 1235, swore that she'd been ill at the time, and that she knew nothing of the deed, and that it was, in fact, Abraham Pinch who'd done the killing. So this is how the document looks on the heir roll for Winchester for Hampshire 1232. Perhaps the most famous case is um, Little St. Hugh of Lincoln, 1255, and this was very significant because this was the first case in which the Crown took a direct interest and made a direct response to prosecute on its own behalf, and that really changed the focus, really, for the Crown's interests in in these cases. And and work by Bob Stacey um, has investigated what were only 14 allegations of ritual killings from the 1140s onwards, and has shown to some extent how much these were fabricated and manipulated for, um, for the usual reasons of community tension and undermining. So Little St Hugh um, in Lincoln in 1255 was found dead in a cesspool near to the house of um, a Jew called Coppin. And again, he was accused of, of killing the child, and really it was just coincidence that so many Jews were in town for a major wedding at the time. But Henry III took a great interest in this because he was already in the the region on progress and it coincided with a particular upsurge in his own Christian piety. So he felt he had to do something uh, and he certainly did. So I'll just mention at this stage that we're involved in a project with King's College on the fine rails of Henry III, which is a very long reign, most of the 13th century. And for the first half of the reign, there's some very good search engines available on these roles and you can really get into these particular fine roles which are roles of um, of fees and fines paid to the crown for favor for office and for influence but also to discharge debts and obligations and there's an enormous amount of detail on the jewish community at this time in these documents and it allows us now to look at at a deeper level to see what was actually going on on a day-to-day basis (coughs) in these business transactions that i mentioned earlier And there's hundreds of entries relating to property and debt taxation. And it really does show how the nature of the Jewish position in England changed during Henry III's reign. And that's the address, finerailshenrythird.org, if you want to go and have a look. And there are some mini essays, Uh, and this is is an essay about the the case of St Hugh of Lincoln, um, which I just mentioned. So there's two of these mini essays by Professor David Carpenter of King's College which goes into the full background detail of what was going on. It so, says an awful lot about the Jewish community at the time. So on that note, I will hand over to Adrian, who's going to tell you a little bit more about what happens later on. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you, Sean, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Okay, the Domus Convers- Conversorum is a house of converts It was founded by Henry III in 1232. It was sited in Chancery Lane in central London, just around the back of the modern um, high court, its purpose was to hold those Jews who had converted to Christianity, and it holds both men and women, so it was both sexes. Daily life within the house of the Jews, the house of the converts, is, was daily life was modeled on monastic practice. So they lived a the very monastic sort of style, communal tables, communal living, uh, communal eating, lots of praying. Each inmate or resident received a weekly allowance from the crown of 10 pence per man and 8 pence per woman. And they were all overseen uh, by a priest who usually was, or quite often was, a convert himself. Now, the house itself continued in use throughout the Middle Ages and well into the 18th century. After the expulsion, a few people still carried on residing there, and uh, you'll hear a bit more more about those in the moment. Now, that's the house of the converts in the the chapel of it in the mid to late 18th century, and this is what it looks like now in the 21st century. It's still there in Chantry Lane, on the site of the old public record office building, which is our predecessor, Pesta, organization. The converts themselves, before the mid-13th century, numbers were relatively small. There are known uh, instances of one or two individuals who had converted and was in the service of the crown, but the numbers were very, very small. Response to the same pressure put on the community by Henry III, between 1240 and 1260, around about 300 Jews uh, converted, which works out uh, at the time to approximately 15th of the overall population. Now, the overall population number is not 100% certain, but... Roughly speaking, you're probably looking at 15 for the population. And whenever a Jewish individual converted, all their chattels were forfeit to the crown, which is why they went to the house of the converts and got a daily, weekly handout from the crown financially too, so they could actually live. Statute of the Jewry. Edward II has just come back from his crusade in, in the Holy Land. He's uh, in need of money, and. Consequently, as part of the, the deal, is they pay him money and he passes a statute on for, the, for the general population. And one of the, the statutes that was passed was a statute of the jury in 1275. Now, this was in October 1275 at Westminster. The provisions in the Act or the statute included that no Jew shall lend at usury either on land or rent, no interest to accumulate on current loans after the 13th of October 1275. Only half the land and chattels of a Christian confiscated for non-payment. So whereas before you lost everything for being confiscated, at this this point on you only lost half the land and half the rent you had. No Jew could acquit a Christian of a debt without royal consent. And every Jew should wear a distinguishing mark on his clothing. Again, a reinforcement of the um, ruling of the Lateran Council in 1215. And again, all Jews over 12 were to pay an annual tax of three pence a year. Now, this statute was the most wide-ranging, detailed and radical legislation concerning the Jewish community in the 13th century. Its grant was probably made in return for a new grant of parliamentary taxation. The statute was not intended to destroy or incapacitate the community, but rather to divert it from usurious activities into legitimate trade. In essence, the statute stopped Jews from lending money at interest, but what was new was that they could have commercial intercourse with Christians in order to carry on lawful trading by buying and selling, in practice, however, this attempt at the economic emancipation of the Jewish community in England was blunted by the continuing rule that Jews could only live in a restricted number of towns, and that they could still need a royal permission to sell property. So they could sell property, but they needed the crown to actually authorise it. And here's a copy of the statute of Jewry in, in the public records here. Q. Now, a lot of the pressure continued, the pressure continued after the Statute of Jury, and there was a, a lot of pressure from the Church to, to go after those who had converted and then reverted back to Judaism. Now after controversial, a lot of this came after the controversial conversion of a Dominican friar known as Robert of Reading. And the King faced a lot of pressure from the Church, especially the Archbishop of Canterbury, John Peachum, John Peckham, to act against those Jews who converted to Christianity, but who had later recanted and returned to original faith. In response to this pressure, the Crown decided to act. The Mayor and Sheriffs of London were ordered in a Royal Writ dated the 14th of November, 1278, a copy of which you can now see on the screen in front of you, and were ordered to arrest 11 named apostates, a mixture of both men and women. Amongst those prescribed were Rosa of Dorking, Bella of Bristol and Slemmer of Bedford. In response to the order, the mayor had rep- replied stating that the group had fled into the London jury and therefore out of his immediate jurisdiction. The thing you might notice is they all have quite westernized names. When the, the Jewish converted to the, to the crown or to Christianity, they were given Christian name. Henry of Winchester, John of Bedford, things like that. Quite often the name taken was named after the, the person who had converted them or convinced them to convert. Now, the pressure increased, not just um, regards to religion, but also from financial aspects as well. And coin clipping, persecutions, was one way increasing the pressure on the community. Now, coin clipping was an illegal practice that reduced the value of the realm's coinage. So, essentially, if you have a round coin, a silver coin, if you cut a bit off it, it's not longer worth the penny it used to be worth before it was cut. And you'll see what I mean when I have an image of a coin in a second to show you what I mean by clipping of a coin. And basically, people store these coin clips up Melt them down so they can make money for themselves. Obviously, the crown wasn't particularly happy with that, and there are lots of complaints about devalue coinage. In December 1276, the judges, some judges, were ordered to investigate allegations, but they had very little impact. One or two people were um, prosecuted, but never actually got anywhere with the prosecutions. But in November 1278, a new concerted effort is made, and they're really going for it this time. Undercover agents are sent to gather evidence in advance, including a convert, Henry of Winchester, who was able to move between both communities with ease and collect evidence in advance of the actual formal trials. Some Christians were arrested, but most of the accused were Jewish. Now, the trial process itself formally started in January, 1279. Justice was harsh and swift. Over 600 Jews were imprisoned, 269 were executed or believed to be executed in London, the Middlesex alone. Now, only three Christians are thought to have been hung as part of this process. The most of those who have been arrested who are Christian were released after paying large fines to the Crown. Now, after six months or five months of um, prosecutions and hangings and executions, uh, enough was enough. They decided, and on the 7th of May 1979, royal orders were issued to those to release those still in prison. But who could afford to pay a fine to the crown for their release now this is an example of a henry III coin and when i talk about coin clipping, if you can see at the top you've got the little beaded edge that should go the whole way around the coin it's been cut off so someone in the past has taken that off melted it down to make their own silver coins and that devalues a, co- uh, a coin of the value because this amount of silver is, is uh, it's actually worth so if you reduce this amount of silver in the coin it's worth less physically than it is before and it has an effect on trade The expulsion, long-term reasons. Heavy royal taxation during Henry III's reign had destroyed the community's financial base. Receipts had fallen from roughly £4,000 per year in the 1240s to around £900 a year in 1278. The community itself was therefore no longer indispensable to the Crown. The population had dwindled to just around about possibly a few thousand. Again, we're not 100% certain, but probably around about a couple of thousand in total. There was a campaign to prevent the coin-clipping, which falls disproportionately upon the Jewish merchants. The official turn of the church had become much more hard-line and hostile due to the rising influence of Dominican orders, such as the Dominicans, especially in the 1280s. And from 1280, all Jews were ordered to attend weekly conversion ser- sermons by the Dominican friars in their local towns. And there were several precedents for expulsion, including, as Sean mentioned before, in uh, 1182, the French kings ordered every Jew to leave their private estates. The Earl of Leicester in 1231, Simon de Montfort, ordered their expulsion from Leicester in 1231. Southampton expelled their Jews in 1236. The Dukes of Brittany expelled theirs in 1239. And Bridge North in 1274. Alongside those long-term reasons, they're a lot more short-term as well. Taliesin of 1287 brought in substantially less money than expected from the Jewish community. So essentially the financial benefits of raising the tax on the Jews was outweighed by the cost of actually collecting it. There was a rise of Italian banking families at stage, such as the Riccardi of Lucca, provided with the first of new sources of ready cash and substantial sources of ready cash. There's no longer any influential constituency in England with a vested interest in the maintenance of the Jewish community. There's no longer there protecting the community anymore. As long as the king was interested, they were protected. He's lost interest, the community is now vulnerable. There's ongoing refusal to assimilate into the wider wider Christian population. Again, the more they, they put pressure on the community, the more the Jews acted... It, uh, reacted against it and became more and more you know, ardent in their faith and their, and their practices. Edward I's own personal views had hardened after serious illness in 1286. And in late 1289, he returned from Gascony heavily, heavily in debt. And a whole series of recent policies had generated a series of political grievances, and some recent royal policies. So there's little support for new grants for taxation because of these grievances, without Edward making several key political concessions and Edward I himself already had form. In 1287, he expelled expo- the Jews from Gascony. Now, the chronology of the actual expulsion. On the 18th of June 1290, secret orders were sent to each sheriff to seal the archive, the chest of obligations and bonds containing bonds between Christians and the Jews. July 1290, the expulsion was discussed in Parliament at Westminster. On the 18th of July, orders were sent to each sheriff to proclaim the expulsion in their respective counties. On the 27th of July, 1290, safe conducts was, were sent to the same ports, allowing Jewish families to depart in safety. So during the expulsion, they were protected, at least in theory. During the late summer, there were isolated attacks carried by ship's captains. The evidence for this is rather sparse and, and um, disparate, but there are examples or stories of um, one example of a ship's captain selling some Jews into the um, middle of the Thames estuary during a low tide, suggesting that they go out and have a walk on the sandbank, and then sailing away with all the goods and chattels. Whether it's true or not, the evidence is hard to prove. But there's certainly some isolated attacks probably going on at the stage. On the 1st of September, Cockhagen, the arch Presbyter of the Jews in England, was allowed to sell his properties before departure. And on the 1st of November, 1290, all Jews were supposed to have left the realm. Now, what you can see here is an example of one of those orders to the sheriff proclaiming the expulsion. This one's to the sheriff of Gloucester. And it's a second, if you look at the second item down, third item down, That's the beginning of the entry there. So just to give you, show you. And basically it orders him to proclaim the expulsion into his community in the county court. And that was for Gloucestershire, but each county would have had similar ones as well. And just from the side of the text, Jews of the realm of England, they are exiled. So there's your, it's in the text, so it's, it's a highlight so you can see what it says. Now safe conducts themselves. General letters of safe conduct were issued for Jews to leave the realm with their wives, children, and goods. So safe conducts requested that only reasonable charges be made, so that when they left, left they would not be impeded, and the cost of our uh, carriage across the channel, as far as I filed as members, something like four pence per person. However, a few favoured individuals did get their own personal safe conducts, not a general and specific one for them to carry with them. And here's an example of a safe conduct for Bonamy of York, who was probably the last remaining major financier of the Jewish community in England. And this one's dated 26th of July 1219. and it's rolled on the patent rolls. And the text basically says a safe conduct for Bonannicus, Jew of York, his wife, children, and household, quitting the realm after the expiration of the term fixed by the proclamation, touching the restoration of the pledges of Christians. And it's directed to the mayor and bailiffs of York. Now the highlighted bit, you can see, specifically uh, mentions his name. And it says, for Bonamy, Jew of York, and his family. In October, in October 1290, writs, various writs were sent to sheriffs ordering them to arrange for the transportation of the archive of the Jews from each of the towns to Westminster by the 26th of November. All Christians with Jewish bonds, not in the Archive were to appear at Westminster and bring them with them. A list of the contents of each archive was compiled, although not all of these have actually survived. And here's an example of one of those writs in the series C255, sent out, in this case, to the sheriff of Lincoln, ordering them to bring the chirographs, the bonds, obligations in the archive back to London. Goods and property, Now, the Jews could take their chattels with them into exile, but the lands reverted to the crown, and only the crown. Pledges returned to the debtors in October, or October as you can see in my spelling mistake on the machine, sheriffs to hold inquisitions to establish what had been Jewish property and its value, so the, proper, the value of each of these Jewish properties. Anyone holding a property of a Jew to surrender it to the crown, on the 25th of December 1290, Hugh of Kendall, experienced royal servant, was appointed to value and sell all the houses, rents, and tenements formerly held by the Jews. And this is an entry for Stamford um, in Lincolnshire. And amongst the entries, it mentions that halfway down, Matilda of Wakerly, six shillings for the houses which are next to the school of the Jews. And then there's a little bit more entry going on off the edge of the page. So basically, it's recorded, that she got three houses owed originally held by the Jews next to the school of Jews in Stamford. And that's in the series called E101, uh, if I remember correctly. List of bonds remaining in the arca, extra, ex, extra arca in 1292. At the expulsion, all of the unredeemed bonds became the property of the crown, and it was important that they should be listed and described adequately in preparation for their collection. The image that you can see on the screen is a list of those stored amongst the records of the exchequer. And this one particular one lists the obligations and the charters remaining in the former Arca of Exeter, and to 1292. So each entry is a separate bond, separate obligation, separate contract. And these are the ones that are still remaining in the Exchequer at that date. Now, here we can see an example of a special license issued to a few, a very, very small few, favoured Jews, a group of favoured Jews, to sell their property before they left the realm so they could take the proceeds with them. Most of them were allowed to sell and had to leave the properties, a few actually got licenses to sell the properties and take the money with them. Now this example was enrolled in the patent rolls, and it was issued to Aaron, son of Vives, who was the Jew of Edmund, the King's brother, and under its terms, the license allowed him to sell his lands and rents in the city of London and elsewhere to any Christian that he chose. Now, The highlighted part of the text comes from the, in the rolls margin, states concerning Aaron, son of Vives, the Jew of Edmund, the king's brother, for a license to sell the houses, etc. Now, the proceeds of the expulsion. On the 5th of November 1290, the usurious element of all outstanding Jewish debt loans were cancelled by Edward I, so i.e. they're no longer claiming interest. In 1291, it is estimated that some £20,000 worth of bonds had been collected. Hugh of Kendall drew up lists of former Jewish properties in 16 different cities and towns across England. Edward made, later on, about 85 separate grants disposing property from 113 different Jews. And in Oxford alone, property was worth seized, worth over £100, which was a lot of money in, in, at, the, at the time. Now, the overall sales of ex-Jewish property brought in probably around about £1,800. Again, a sizable amount. But weighed against that, the receipts from the exchequer of Jews collapsed after the expulsion because there's no one to argue and there to actually bring cases anymore. Okay, now here we can see an example of an enrolment made in receipt rolls. It lists the fines received from the outstanding debts of the Jews in Lincoln, Suffolk, Somerset and York, during the Easter term of 1294. The last entry relating to the of Bridlington is particularly interesting. At the expulsion, Bridlington owed Bonamy of York 300 pounds, but the Priory had neglected to form, inform the Crown about the outstanding debt, and it was only now four years later that they actually mentioned it to the King. Now, some of these debts continued to be outstanding as late as 1327, when Edward III, shortly after he came to the throne, gave up all claim to the payments still owing to the crown, and cancelled all the debts. The aftermath. Most Jewish exiles fled in the first instance to France. But on 16th of February 1291, Philip IV of France ordered their expulsion from French lands. Most did comply, but a few are known to remained, including Bonomy of York. At least for a few years, Bonomy remained in Paris. Now where they went after that is a matter of conjecture, but it's believed that they scattered across Europe and beyond to other parts of the British Isles, such as Scotland, to the Mediterranean, and to Egypt. And in France itself, in 1306, Philip orders the expulsion of all Jews from his territories. Not Jews from England, but all Jews from his territories. Now after the expulsion, there was no longer any practicing Jews living in England, or at least theoretically there's none surviving in England. The traces of the community did survive in things such as place names, such as the old Jewry in London. Occasionally, there is evidence of individual Jews visiting England in succeeding centuries, and throughout centuries until the 17th century when they returned. There's also a physical reminder from the continuing presence of those converted Jews living in the domus of the Conversorum. Now, What you can see on screen is a copy of the petition dated to 1308 from the converts of the house in London to Edward II asking that the annual sum of £202, fourpence, granted by his father for their maintenance be granted to them and any arrears paid. And there's a subsequent commission to Ralph Hengham and John de Sandale to establish how many men and women were still residing in the Domus. Now, taken in the chapel of the Domus on the Sunday, the 1st of December, 1308, it confirmed that 17 men and 17 women had died since the expulsion, but the Domus still had 23 men and 28 women living within its walls. And then finally, the last survivor of the Jewish community in England. Her name was Clarice of Exeter, daughter of Jacob Copen. As a child, she was admitted to the Domus Conversorum before 1280. In the early 14th century, she moved down to Exeter, married and had a family. But in old age, in 1330, she returned to the Domus, the walls of the Domus, and two of her children shortly joined her within its um, walls. She herself died in 1356 the last living link to the vibrant Jewish community established in the aftermath of the conquest. Thank you. This event was recorded
0: live on the 22nd of April, 2010 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved.